Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. I love this month because every year May makes me think of family. You know, graduations. We had a we have a first grade graduate in our family, so our grandson graduated first grade. It was, it was something to celebrate. Um, weddings happen this month. Uh, anniversaries, and so so many things happen during this month. That ever since I became senior pastor in 2004, we devoted the month of May typically to family marriage topics. And that changed last year because we were in the midst of COVID and it just uh, felt that we needed to address issues that were happening in the culture. And even that's happening even up to today. But today I thought with the Graduates Week, and this is a good day to focus on marriage and family because I really believe the church is your family and marriage's greatest ally. The church wants to support you. And when you think through your life, like walk down your hallways at your house, flip through your wallet, look at your phone, the majority of pictures, I would say probably 90% of the pictures or more, are about your family. I mean, the older I get, the more I treasure family. The more my family means something. And I think it's because they've hung with me all these years. They've endured things. They've, they've always shown up. They've been reliable. You know, I, I love family. Julie and I had the privilege of going to Arizona the last few days. We spent three days with our daughter Stephanie and her family in Chandler, and it's just beautiful to reconnect with them. And I realize as I get older that there's going to come a time where I'm really going to depend on my family. So, you know, I, I asked my wife one time, you know, when I'm old and weak and my hair's falling out and I'm flabby and I have no teeth, will you still love me? And she says, yes, I already am doing that. So that's love. That's love. And only family loves you like that. Uh, 2020 was good for some families. This whole last year for some families to really reconnect. I mean, they, they did education together. They cooked together. They got creative in their entertainment together. They watched movies together. I mean, many of you even today, are, you're gathered with your family on your couch or your bed watching church. I mean, you participate as a family. You're doing home church. And it's been a really good thing for some families. They've really learned to step up and be a family. Uh, but there's been other families where it's not been so good. The stress of being together 24-7 has taken a toll. Uh, they've not known what to do with all this time and, and how to meet all the demands and the stresses that each family member was dealing with. We found that over the last year that families were actually divided over their views of politics and, and COVID and how to, how to deal with issues and whether to gather or not gather, you know, whether to follow the, the strict rule of the law or not. And so it was really hard on families. I know families that, that didn't get together for most of the year 2020. I mean, they just didn't even see each other. And I also know some families where adults have said, you know, my kids don't want us coming around because of who we voted for in the last election. I mean, it's really sad to find families have actually fractured over issues that, that may not have bothered them in the past, but this year they were very sensitive. And, and families said, hey, we really don't want you around our kids or around our house, or we don't want you bringing that virus near us or potential. And so it's really caused some hardships, some pain. Um, and I know as a, as a grandparent, if I couldn't see my grandkids, man, that would be so painful. Many of you are dealing with pain, relational pain, family pain, things you're dealing with, with, with loved ones. Some of you are dealing with the pain of losing a family member. About 12 years ago, I visited an old college roommate of mine. His name was Mike. He lived up in Oregon. Mike was struggling with a disease that his body was, was holding on to water. He was swelling up. He was in a lot of pain, and we were going to be in Oregon for something. I said, I really want to go by and see my old roommate. And so I stopped by to visit with him, 
and had a nice chat with, with Mike and his wife, Kelly. And then later that year, in December, he died. And his wife said, would you mind coming back up here and doing Mike's funeral? And I thought, oh, I'd be glad, I'd be honored to, but I've not been there through all this. And she says, I know, but, but he really thought a lot of you and it meant so much to him that you stopped to see him. And it would mean much to me if you came to do his funeral. So I did. I went up there and, and conducted his funeral and shared a lot of things I remember. He was my roommate for two years in Bible college. Well, this week, just a couple days ago, his daughter uh, messaged me on Facebook. And she said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I'm engaged to get married this, this fall. And we're planning a September wedding. And I've been thinking a lot about my dad lately and wondered, since you knew him, if you would come up and do our wedding. And, uh, oh, my goodness, um, I don't hardly even know this girl, but she's asked me. It's because within the church culture, there is such a bond um, of, of family. And it, and it could be biological family uh, of, of people who've grown up in a family. You've given birth. You've raised them. And it could be through marriage or adoption where someone from the outside of the family lines are brought into the family, and you've all connected, and, and you've bonded together. And it even goes beyond that to what some of us would call Velcro family, which are people that you've just loved being with, and you've just gotten, a, gotten stuck to like Velcro, and you treat them like family. And so I love the fact that the church is pro-family. The church is the most pro-family, pro-marriage organization in the world. And, and it is your best ally for you and what you're trying to accomplish. And I really believe that as we go through life, we really realize my greatest joy doesn't come from my job, though I may like my job. My greatest joy doesn't come from my possessions, though I'm, I'm grateful for those. My greatest joy comes from family and having healthy family relationships. And so when, we're, when we struggle through life and find our families fractured, we're looking for help. And honestly, if I, if I flip through the pages of the Bible... I go back to the very beginning, before God ever gave us government, before God ever even created the church, he created family. It was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were brought together, and they were commanded to have children, and they had lots of them, and they were to raise these children, to have dominion over the earth with them. They were to manage the land, the animals, all that God had given to them. But, but there was this, this wily dude there named the devil who got in between, who deceived them regarding God's promise, and then through the deception, caused them to be divided from God, caused them to lose the privilege of intimacy with God. And all through history, we have found this enemy at work to cause division within families. And that's why when I flip through the pages of Scripture, it is really hard to find the ideal family. I mean, find for me the ideal family in the Bible that really got it right. Is it Abraham, who had sons who lied and who, who even lied about his own wife? And, and you've got Jacob and his kids who also were liars, and then you've got David and Solomon whose kids went, you know, uh, very off, off the charts, you know, turned against their fathers. I mean, you've got all these stories in Scripture of, of heroes that we call heroes of the Bible, Samuel and all these guys, and yet their kids didn't walk in the same footsteps as their parents. And we just find heartache after heartbreak within families, even within Scripture. And, and then if you go beyond Scripture to modern day, look at families. I bet if you'd get behind the curtain of every single family in this church, and this is no disrespect to you and your family, but if someone were to walk inside your family and spend some time with you, they'd see the cracks in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with your siblings. And see, we can put on this really nice um, front at church, like, ah, they look like they have a great family. They come to church, they worship, they're always happy. But you go behind family doors and it's another story. 
And then you, then you hear out of the blue, someone's getting a divorce. You, you hear that, hey, that kid left, moved out of the house after graduation. He moved five states away. They never see him anymore. Why did he do that? Well, he, he left an environment he just found intolerable. And we're, we're afraid to deal with the issues within our homes. And we've got to, got to value what God values. There's so many families struck with deep wounds, unbearable losses, patterns of abuse, episodes of anger, addiction, and adultery, couples sleeping in separate bedrooms, people not talking to one another. But I want to tell you today that there's hope, that God can make it better. That's one of the greatest things I think the church can do is remind you that as hard as family life is, God can make it better. He is the ultimate healer. Sometimes the greatest miracles are beyond physical. They're the relational, where God actually helps people work through trauma and difficulty and sin to reunite, to come together even sometimes stronger than it ever was before. And God can do it. I've seen it. I've seen it. He, he masters in healing. And churches like ours become like health clinics, Little hospitals that you go to say, my family's struggling, I need, I need help. You've come to the right place because you'll never find a place on this planet that's more for your family than your local church. And I know for Pikes Peak Christian Church, we value your marriage, we value your relationship with your kids very much. Now, you may hear this phrase, and we've probably heard it for a long time, that time heals all wounds, but it really doesn't. All time does is get you far away, far away from the cause of the wound that you don't feel it as strongly. But all of a sudden, you see that person again, you're reminded of the events that caused it, and boom, that wound flares up again, and it's very raw. Only God can go deep in the heart to where we, we need that inner healing, that emotional healing. And, and here's the truth. God heals fractured families through his church. God uses churches like this to heal fractured families. So how does he do it? How does God do that? Well, I want to share with you some ways God does it. Number one is by helping us follow God's word. He helps heal these fractured families by helping us uh, understand and follow God's word. You know, the other day when we were down in Arizona, we stayed with a friend of mine. We always stay with my friend because he's got a spare bedroom. Uh, his wife passed away from leukemia several years ago, and he's, he's by himself, but he always welcomes us to his bed and breakfast, he calls it. So we stayed there. This time he said, hey, do you need a car? And I said, well, we don't have one. He says, well, how about you take my, uh, my car? He's got a little sports car that he uses for fun. It's a Mercedes-Benz Roadster convertible, and, I, and uh, it's a hard top. And I said, oh, you know, I, I really prefer the soft top. <laughs> but I will take it. We'll take it. So it was fun to drive that around, and the grandkids say, you know, Baba, put the, put the top down. So we put the top down and drove around, and it was a lot of fun with the grandkids in the car. But then I needed to put gas in. So I pull up to the Costco gas pump. I'm going to put premium in, and I look around for the little button that releases the gas cap. Mm, there's no button over there, no button here, 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 nothing on the, on the key fob. I says, okay, this could get real embarrassing real fast. I, don't, I do not know how to pop that open. So quick, reach in, the, reach in the, the glove box. There's a manual there. Flip over to fuel. And it says, and it just says in there, hey, if the car's unlocked, you just press on the, on the door and it, and it opens up. So it saved me a world of embarrassment because I thought, if I have to go to the lady behind me and say, hey, you know, I don't even know how to open the gas cap. That's your car. You bought a car without even knowing how to put gas in it. 
no, it's not my car, it's my friend's car. So, so it saved me embarrassment because I could refer to the manual. But you know, when you get married, you don't get a manual. You know, the pastor doesn't say, now I pronounce your husband and wife, and here you go. <laughs> and you don't get a manual when you leave the hospital with your baby. You go home and you go, now what do I do? Who do I turn to when the baby starts crying? You know, what do I do? And, you know, we panic because we don't know. And, and we've learned some things from our parents. And there's some things we've learned from our parents that we said we're never going to do. So, and, and also, we didn't take good notes. So now we're thrown in this environment like, I really don't know how to work through conflict. I really don't know how to, how to help a crying child. I really don't know how to discipline them when they're, when they're not behaving. And I don't know how to do all these things. But, but there is a manual that God has given us called scriptures. I don't know of any book that's better at helping us navigate relationships than the Bible. It is, it is very helpful in helping us to discern what is God's will. Now, I want to share with you something that, that some of you, I think, think, need to understand the context of what we're dealing with in our current culture. Because if you go back to the early church, Christianity was a subculture. Christianity operated in the Greek-Roman culture, which was very polytheistic, meaning they had all these gods. Remember all the Greek gods? Statues and everything everywhere. That, that's who they worship. Uh, they would go into temples and oftentimes have temple prostitutes. I mean, this whole culture was very different than our culture currently. So it was, it was a very distinct subculture that had Jewish background for some, but the Gentiles that were coming came from, the, from Greek and you know, Roman, other nations' backgrounds coming into the church. And they were learning a new subculture, a new way of operating. Now, one of the things that was going on in the early um, church culture was their view of marriage. It was so different than ours today. You may not realize that, but in the, the, the early church period, uh, William Barclay writes about this in his daily Bible study commentary series. He says, um, he quotes one guy, his name is Demosthenes. He's a Greek um, orator and statesman. He writes just very frankly this of the Greek culture. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. Uh, we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. So the typical man would have several women in his life. I've got a wife. She's, she, ha she gave me kids and she, she watches the kids. I have my concubines, my mistresses. That's for pleasure. You know, I have my prostitutes. I have these other women for other things, but my wife is for home stuff, not for companionship, not even for pleasure, just to kind of get the work done. And in that culture, wives sometimes had separate apartments where she raised the kids, and her husband was the only man allowed to visit her in that apartment. And so this, this view we have today of, 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 of a companion for life, that wasn't the early church culture. And so when you think people look back at the early church and go, oh, Christianity came in and was so repressive on women, it liberated women. It gave dignity to women and children. It really did. It, it, it gave a different meaning to marriage and the institution. And so, so the subculture development says, you know, we're going to do things the way the owner, the, the maker, said to do them. And I bring this up because for, for many decades, we live in a culture where culture basically mirrored biblical values. And even if it wasn't Christian, it said, you know, we still, we still believe that's, that a man ought to, ought to marry a woman instead of just sleeping with her, ought to marry her. That's, that's the right thing to do. Non-Christians believe that. 
You'd watch TV shows from the 50s and 60s, very honorable. There wasn't sexual promiscuity and all that, but we're, we're, we've, we've started to veer, and now we're really veering sharply to where even what marriage looks like looks very different in our modern culture than what it did 40, 50 years ago. And what I want to tell you is I'm, I'm, not, I'm not angry at the culture. The culture doesn't intend to follow God. Why am I expecting it to follow God? I, what I'm concerned about is the church culture. Are we following God? Because I really believe God said, I gave you this to bless you. And so when you hear teachings about marriage and family from the scripture, it's not repressive. It is really protecting us. It's liberating us. So let me just share with you, and I'm just going to share, we are very open about, about teaching the Bible when it comes to marriage and family. Scripture says that you should not sleep with someone if it's not your married spouse. That, that's biblical. That, that sex is not a, a, a hobby. It's not like we could go bowling or have sex. You know, it's, it's a bonding agent for a couple that's in a very um, committed relationship because it's a spiritual bonding moment. It's not just for pleasure, though it is pleasurable. It is, it is to bond that couple in a way that they don't bond with anybody else. And so when we start just saying, oh, I'm going to have sex with everybody, it diminishes the value within the context of marriage. So I'm just telling you, in our culture, it's very common. It's very rare even within the church that a couple says, we are going to honor that. And we will not have sex until we're married. We just kind of, ah, nobody does that anymore. Well, some do. The ones that really want to follow God's ways do. Because if you really want God's favor, do it God's way. It, marriage is meant to be a lifelong covenant. It's not something we try out for a while and then we get out of. It's, it's meant to be something, it's for better, for worse, for richer, for till death do us part. And now I know sometimes there's circumstances where divorce happens and it probably is, is acceptable or permissible, but it is, it is intended by God to be a lasting relationship. It's a relationship that's meant to be with one man and one woman in that covenant relationship. And yet culture and different cultures say, oh no, it can be many people or it could be same-sex people, it could be a lot of different. But the Bible only endorses one kind of marriage and that's between a man and a woman. Now I'm not condemning people from other views or other cultures. I'm saying if you are seeking God's will and God's ways, it's pretty clear of what God wants for his family, what he believes is best. And even the teaching sometimes when in Scripture that sometimes um, shocks us a little bit in our modern culture, for example, from Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, let me share with you uh, some of the biblical teaching because if we really want to follow God's teaching, we, we, we do that and then we see the results of it. And here's one of those that oftentimes is very misunderstood and, and is very feared and kind of avoided. But I don't want to avoid it. I want to dive right into it for a few moments. I want to tell you before I read this, it follows a section where Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, he says, you'll be joyful. He says, when you're filled with the Spirit, you will be um, uh, thankful. It says, when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be submissive to one another. And so it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Um, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husband, loves your love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now scripture tells in other places too that the husband is to be the head of the, the marriage, the head of the home. And, and that can be very offensive to some because we know that men have abused authority. We know men who've had egos, who've had, who had power trips, who've, who've abused that position. And, and I know that's a reality that, that, 
that is out there. But the truth is God says, I have given husbands in the family context a very responsible position as the head. And head can mean different things in different contexts. So even in the Bible, it can mean different things. It can mean the climax of an event, you know, things came to a head, or it could be the, the end of an object, the head of a nail, or it could be the source of something, the, the headwaters. But when it's referred to in relationships that someone is the head, it's someone who is the, the person in authority within a tribe, within the government, within um, a community. It's a head. It's a position of authority and responsibility. Not just authority, I would say the, even the emphasis is more on responsibility because he says that husbands are responsible to be like Christ. Now, back in, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verse 3, it says, the head of every woman is the husband, the head of every husband is Jesus, and the head of Christ is God. Now, think about this. The head of Christ is God. Aren't, aren't Jesus and the heavenly Father, like, equal? How can God be over Jesus? Well, relationally, they're equal, they're part of the Trinity, Holy Spirit too, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity. But functionally, how they operate, the Son has submitted himself to his Father's will. That's why when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember what he said? Not my will, but your will, okay? He submitted his will. Submission is my mission comes under your mission. Jesus says my will comes under your will. You know that the Holy Spirit came under Jesus? He came to serve Jesus' will. And, and men are responsible to submit their mission to Jesus' mission. My will is not whatever I want. It's what Jesus wants. And when you have a husband leading like that, a woman says, I kind of like that. I do kind of like that. In fact, what, what, what Paul's getting at is husbands are to be sacrificial servants like Jesus who put the welfare of their family above themselves. In other words, husbands are lead servants in the family. You want to get an amen, ladies? Wouldn't you love for your husband to say, how can I serve my family? Uh, and, and that could look a lot different. It could be I'm mowing the lawn. It could be I'm cooking the dinner. It could be I'm playing with the kids. It could be I'm changing a diaper. I don't care what it looks like. Whatever servants, service looks like in the context of your home, that's what should be done. We as men are called to be lead servants. It's a privilege to have the headship role, to have the authority, to have the responsibility. But it's not something you puff around and say, I'm the boss around here, I'm in charge here. It's put a towel on your arm and say, okay, I'm the lead servant of this household. What do I need to do? What do I need to do for you and for you and for you? It's a whole different mindset, but that's what Paul's getting at here. Men are to be that way. And when men are that way, it then trickles down is how, how they parent their kids. Because Paul writes a few verses later, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. Honor their position. Honor their authority. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Do you want it to go well with you? Honor your parents. And then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers have to take a lead role in teaching their kids. We don't abdicate that to our wives. Their wives are very capable of teaching children. Um, it's not that, that moms aren't good teachers. It's really a kick, a kick to the men like, hey, don't, don't abdicate. Because my observation is women are already self-motivated to do the serving and to do the teaching in the family. It's the guys that got to step up. And we have to, we have to step into that role to, to teach our kids, to, to do it gently, without yelling at them, without putting fear in them, to lead them in a way that they want to walk with the Lord. You know, Denzel Washington 
is a great actor. I, I love the movies he's in, and, and he's just such a phenomenal actor. But I didn't know this until recently. He, he was, he's the son of a Pentecostal pastor. But he said his dad was never there for him. His dad was always consumed with his work, and, and he didn't even cry at his dad's funeral. But when Denzel Washington is asked about what's happening in our current culture, here's what he says. He says, one of the things that saddens me the most about my people is that fathers don't take care of their sons and daughters, and you can't blame that on the man or getting frisked. Take responsibility. Look in the mirror and say, what can I do better? And I think that's true of all of us, men. We would empty prisons if we did our job well. Most of those, most of those kids in prison don't have a relationship with their dad. Their dad's uninvolved. And so I'm bringing this, all this up because I think this is the, one of the best things churches do is help us to know and follow God's word. Are you seeking to do that? Are you seeking to know it? And you're seeking to live your life according to it. Secondly, by applying grace. Uh, Paul writes in, in Ephesians 4 about all these changes that take place when Jesus is Lord of our lives. We get rid of lying and we get rid of anger and And then toward the end of that chapter, he says this, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, when you give your life to Christ, um, he washes you clean of sin, and then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. He's a person. That's why you can grieve him. He's trying to lead us into God's way. He's he's trying to speak to us, to prompt us, to to urge us to follow the way of the Lord. And when we say, I don't want to do that, or we ignore his prompting, we grieve him. We pierce his heart. We cause pain to the Spirit of God because he's trying to, to get us to live in a better way. And part of the process is getting rid of the toxins that are in our spirit, the things that cause relational damage. And he lists a whole bunch of them there. He says, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, a lot of ugly things. And things that are very prevalent in our homes. You know what saddens me? And I'll just speak from my own experience. I I can be far ruder to my own family than to strangers. I can be more hostile and angry with my own kids than with kids at the church. I mean, we're very good at at putting on the front with other people of how nice and sweet we are, and then you get behind closed doors and the volume goes way up. We start barking orders. We start demanding. We start screaming. I mean, I don't think I'm the only one from my own experience in my home, the one I grew up in, the one I'm in now, that that sometimes we, we just, we don't treat each other well. We just don't. And we do this, this, uh, hey, yeah, good to see you. Hey, put that down. I told you to put it down. I'm going to come kick your butt. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's uh, really good. We're doing fine. Family's great. You know, and then, you know, any of you do that? Why do we do that? You know, we're so mean to our family. I mean, Oh, my goodness. I grew up at home where my dad would raise his voice. And when I became a teenager, I said, Dad, come on. We, can't we just talk? I have to raise my voice or you won't understand me. I said, okay, whatever. You know, uh, we do that. And, and I think here's why we do that. Because they don't have anywhere else to go. 
If you treated your friends like that, they'll walk away. You, you, treat, you treat customers in your business like that, they're going to go somewhere else. So why do we do it at home? Because you don't have anywhere else to go. We pay your bills. We put food on the table. We buy your clothes. We give you a ride to school. You're not going anywhere. So clean up your room. You know, we bark at them. And, you know, I just say, we do that. Why do we do that? Shouldn't home be the place where we live out our faith the most? I just want to challenge you because I'm challenging myself. Our home should be, should be a place that's filled with grace. It should be, as, as Paul writes in here, a place with great kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Tenderheartedness. Think about that. Are you tenderhearted to your spouse, to your kids, to your parents? Are you kind? Do you forgive? You know, I'm amazed sometimes when I hear stories, and, I, and they blow me away sometimes how painful. Stories of abuse, stories of betrayal, siblings fighting over inheritances, I mean, deception, all kinds of stuff going on. And, and I don't know your story. There's probably a lot of pain there. But we don't do ourselves a favor by holding on to bitterness. Uh, we've got to learn to let it go. We've got to learn to forgive because he says, God in Christ forgave you. Do you ever think about how much you offended Jesus with your sin? How deeply you pierced his heart and yet he said he forgave you? And now that he's forgiven you, says, forgive other people like I forgave you. Isn't that fair? It's fair. And yet, somehow we, we, we choose to hold on to something. There was a man in our church years ago. He had something really big. His, his father had sexually abused his sister. He didn't know that until he was an adult. He got very bitter toward his dad. He didn't want anything to do with his dad anymore because his dad wouldn't admit it, wouldn't confess it, wouldn't repent of it. So he just cut him off. His dad just lived down the road in Canyon City in a nursing home. One day, this man was in a Bible study at our church, and the Bible study that day was on forgiveness. And if you know much about uh, unforgiveness, unforgiveness is the poison we drink thinking we're going to hurt somebody else. It kills ourselves. It kills our own soul. It shrivels us up on the inside. The other person has no clue what we're dealing with, but we're holding it and telling ourselves, I'm not going to forgive. I, mean, I can't ever forgive because that's, that's getting them off the hook. And after that lesson that day, he realized that it was hurting him more than anybody else. He got in his car right after church, drove down to Canyon City, pulled into that nursing home, walked down the aisles of the, of the corridor in that nursing home, found his dad in a wheelchair. Now his dad was starting to lose some of his, his thinking. He said, Dad, you know, what you did to my sister was horrible. And I don't know if you're ever going to admit to what you've done, but I'm here to tell you, I forgive you. He gave his dad a hug and he left. And from that day on, he was free. He felt the peace because he had given grace. You can't always determine what the other person will do. That's not our job. But our job is to forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Are your family relationships filled with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness? They should. Thirdly, by covering it with prayer. Covering it with prayer. Our families need to be covered with prayer. I think one of the best things the church can do is just remind you, hey, we can, we can pray for you. We can pray for your marriage. We can pray for your relationship with your kids. Sometimes you feel so helpless as a spouse, so helpless as a parent, like, I don't even know what to do other than pray. And sometimes prayer is the best thing for you to do. 
Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. I've had so many stories of a mother, of a grandfather, a grandmother, a spouse who persisted in prayer and over a long period of time saw those prayers answered one after the other. In fact, there was a guy with us um, last week. He was a pastor visiting from another church. He said uh, he didn't become a Christian until he was in his early 20s. And he knew his mom had been praying for him his whole life. So he went home to tell his mom. He said, Mom, I gave my life to Christ. And he thought she was going to give him a hug and start cheering. And she said, one down, three to go. (laughs) And she turned and left and went into her bedroom to start praying for the other three kids, his siblings. And uh, as shocked as he was, he says, she's a prayer warrior. They've now got two, two of the four. So um, who is that person in your life? And who are the people around you praying? Every Sunday, we get cards. And, and if you've never filled them out, there's cards at the back of the chair in front of you that you can fill out. I think there's a place you can go online as well to write our prayer request. But, but tell us what your prayer needs are. I would say that three-fourths of the prayer requests that come in are family-related. Family-related. So let us know how to pray. There are people that pray every Thursday. Our staff, we have a prayer team. That meets on Thursdays. We pray over these things. We want to cover your family in prayer. But of, all, of course, you should be praying for your family as well. That should be a regular part of your own family life. It says in 1 Peter 3, 7, this is again something to husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Your prayers may not be hindered. The assumption is you husbands are praying for your wives. And how powerful it is when a man takes his wife's hands and prays for her or lays down beside her in bed and prays with her or for the father who goes into the kids' rooms and kneels by their bed and puts his hand on on their shoulder or their head and prays over them or goes into their bedroom when they're quiet asleep and just utters a prayer over them knowing that they're going through tough things at school or they have a test coming up, or they tried out for the band or the sports team, and you know they're going through struggles, and, and you know your advice probably didn't help them a whole lot, but you pray over them. You pray over them. Cover them with prayer. Is your family covered by prayer? Then lastly, the church can help by being an encouragement, uh, by being encouraged by other believers. I think one of the greatest things is knowing that we are all in the same boat, we're all kind of heading the same direction, wanting the same things. We want to have good marriages. We want to have good families, and we can encourage one another. It says in the book of First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. When you encounter someone who's ready to give it, give it up, like uh, my marriage isn't, isn't going to make it, don't give up. Don't give up. We're praying for you. You know, I don't know what to do with my kid. He's, you know, they've gone off another direction. Uh, pray for them. I, I don't give up. Keep loving them. Have hope. You know why geese fly in a V formation? There, there's, a, there's actually a scientific reason why they do that. The, the lead one's doing the majority of the work, but every goose behind the lead one benefits from the, the wing uh, draft of the goose in front of them. In fact, science says that in that V formation, the whole flock adds at least a 71% greater flying range than if they flew independently. So they can go so much further as a group than they could individually because they're going the same direction. When you've got people going the same direction, it makes a difference. You've got people who value marriage like you do, it makes a difference. You have people who want to raise Christian kids uh, around you, it makes a difference. Um, someone asked me once, do you know why 
it, when, when geese fly in that V formation, one side is typically longer than the other side. Now, this is one of the elders in the church, and I thought it would be a real profound answer, but he said, I said, no, I have no clue. He says, because there's more geese on that side. <laughs> so I said, okay, yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but we are moving in the same direction in marriage and in family. And so when you're struggling with grief, we have a support group called Grief Share. If you're going through a divorce, we have a group called Divorce Care. And if you have wounds that go back years, we have a, a ministry called Healing Journey to, to come beside you. We started a few years ago a ministry called Reengage. And I, I, what I love about Reengage is couples come together and you get to hear the raw story. Instead of this polished, we've got it all together marriage, you hear people come in saying, you know what, we do fight. Or we, we, we are sleeping in separate bedrooms or we're, we're thinking about divorce. And you hear stories of heartbreak, of heartbreak but there's hope that maybe God could do something wonderful for our marriage too. And we see marriages get healed through re-engage. Church is for your family. Church is for your marriage. This whole concept we started years ago, which we don't talk about much now, but it, this, it's, or, it's called orange. And orange was a philosophy that you take home, which is signified by the, the heart. And the heart is red. Heart is, uh, home is where the heart is. And then you take the church, which is the light of the world, and so you have the sun, which is yellow, which is a light. You take yellow, mix it with red, you put them together, what do you get? Orange, orange. And the whole point of that was that the, the family needs the church and the church needs the family, and together we accomplish God's will better because we complement one another. The same values you're trying to teach your kids at home, we're trying to teach at church. The same, the same uh, theology we're trying to teach at church you're teaching at home with your kids and we're doing the same thing but it's so hard to do it by yourself we need one another we need the encouragement of other parents of other couples heading in the same direction you know i love that about our church is we're we're a bunch of broken people we're we're cracked a lot of cracks a lot of cracks but we have a healer who can heal those cracks and makes us beautiful, and makes us vessels he can use. So here's what I want to do to close our service. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand, and our prayer partners to just come down while we're standing to be available up front here. I want to close in prayer and pray over you, for, especially for marriages and families. But if you have an issue that, that you've been dealing with, if you have a broken part of your life right now where you're saying, God, I really need prayer, I need encouragement because I'm ready to give up, I'm ready to throw in the towel, I, I, I'm, I'm just ready to collapse because I don't know what to do with this, let us pray for you, let us encourage you, let us, let us help infuse you with some hope that there is a God who sees and hears and can help you right where you are. So, Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have of being together in this place. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace for us. And thank you, Lord, that, that all over this place, you know, even as I looked around, there's stories of healing. There's stories of restoration. Some of the greatest miracles I've ever seen in this place have been marriages that have come back together because of you, have been relationships with parents and kids who have been healed because of you. And we ask that, do it more. Do it again. Do it at a greater measure. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you need prayer,